Well, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses, uh, uh, the back half of uh, verse 2 through the end of the chapter, as we conclude this series on leadership, Paul's first letter to Timothy. You'll find that on page 993 of your church Bibles, and please take a copy of God's Word. If you don't have a copy of your own, and, and just take the Bible that's in the pouch in front of you and put your name in it and receive it as a gift from this church family. We'd love for you to have it. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says, teach and urge these things, coach says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, and whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is God's Word. Amen. Teach and urge these things. 
What things? Gospel things. Things like 1 Timothy 1.15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Things like 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Things like 1 Timothy 3.16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Things like 1 Timothy 4.10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. These things. Teach and urge these gospel things. In a culture seeking to deny truth or worse still, redefine truth, truth about marriage, Truth about sexuality, truth about the value of life, truth about the reality of the life to come, truth about stewardship of this earth, the truth about who God is and therefore who we are. Paul says, Timothy, teach these things. And he concludes his letter to Timothy with a coaching session about hope. The truth about hope. 1 Timothy chapter 6 deals with the question, where is your hope? Where are you setting your hope? Now, what do I mean by hope? Well, here's what I mean. Hope, defined as this. The confident expectation in the Word of Christ that changes the way I live. That's what I mean. Biblical hope, the confident expectation in the Word of Christ that changes the way I live. The confident expectation. It's confident because it's not based on human wisdom. It's not based on human faithfulness or human power. It's based on the otherworldly, awesome, powered, ever faithful wisdom of God. Confident expectation in the Word of Christ. So my hope is not based on anything inside myself. My hope isn't based on my feelings or my moods or my emotions. My hope is based on the unbreakable word of Christ, the confident expectation in the word of Christ, and that changes the way I live. Changes how I live. It changes uh, my outlook on life. It changes my worldview. It changes how I see others, how I see God, how I see myself, and it gives me the courage to take risks that others just don't understand because they don't possess the hope that we have in Christ. Biblical hope is the confident expectation in the word of Christ that changes the way I live. And Paul says, guard this hope. Protect this hope. Shelter this hope. Defend this hope and never ever dilute it. When you swerve from gospel hope your life goes from an immovable, unshakable, concrete foundation to quicksand. And that's where these false teachers are. They're just on quicksand. And they just don't, they don't know it. They don't know it. And Paul concludes with just this one last appeal. Timothy, 
you know, you fix this false teaching and, and don't, you know, don't succumb to their false hope. And so 1 Timothy's path is this. Paul speaks of false hope and describes it. That's verses 2 through 10. And then Paul glories in the true hope. Verses 11 through 16. And then Paul, in verses 17 and 19, talks about how the true hope changes the way we live. That's the direction of these verses. False hope, true hope, and how true hope changes the way we live. So let's, let's talk about what this false hope is about. And this false hope is being offered by false teachers teaching a false gospel. Now, we've talked about this false gospel in 1 Timothy. And so, if this is your first Sunday here, let me just summarize the false gospel in a very simple formula. Because this false gospel lurks in the hallways of life, even today. And here's the formula for the false gospel. Jesus plus something equals salvations. Okay? That's, the, that's it. So see, anytime you add something to Jesus, you take away everything. You really do. And that's their false teaching. And, and so, you know, I, I, I've been thinking about this, and one of my questions is, okay, what's motivating a false teacher to be a false teacher? Okay, what's in it for them? What's, you know, what's their angle? And here is where we find out. Here is, here is where we learn why they are the way they are. Verses uh, 3 through 10 explain their psychology. It explains the, the logic of their false hope. And it's, and it's very simply this. Conceit connected to chaos connected to cash. Really? Yeah, let, let's just walk through this. First, conceit, verse 4. Their false teaching is connected to conceit. Um, literally, that phrase in verse 4, he is puffed up with conceit. Literally, their minds are puffed up with smoke. All right? Puffed up with smoke. There, there's pride. There's conceit. Their heads are big. Uh, and then their conceit is connected to chaos. That's... Verse 5, constant friction among people depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. So whenever they enter a room, they don't bring peace. They bring constant friction. They bring chaos. The conceit is connected to the chaos and what follows is the cash. Verse 5, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, when you read the word godliness, just read ministry is a means to gain, financial gain. Conceit, connected to chaos, connected to cash. They're in it for the cash. And you might ask, well, how is that possible? Well, remember, Ephesus was the wealthiest city in the wealthiest province of the Roman Empire. And there were some wealthy attenders in the church community. 
And that included some wealthy widows, both young and old, and some of whom had bought into the opulence and sensuous lifestyle of what ancient historians call the, the new woman of the Roman Empire. The new woman of the Roman Empire. This lifestyle that would, that would, that would, that would make you know, uh, Lady Gaga uh, look like Mary Poppins. I mean, it's just... You know, and those false teachers uh, saw a market opportunity and they wanted in on some of the action. And so they peddled religion to enrich themselves. They created a confused culture of codependent followers willing to pay for one more anti-gospel session which would ultimately deplete their purses while lining the false teachers' pockets. And the thing of it is, it's working. It's working. I mean, why else would we have 1 Timothy? And Paul knows that Timothy can see this going on. And Paul wants Timothy to fight this and fix this. And at the same time, Paul is also aware that Timothy too could be infected by this disease because he's going into it. And so, you know, Timothy's going to need to kind of he's going to suit up with his hazmat suit and, and be prepared to fight the infection and I think that explains Paul's urgency. He says, I want you to fix this, but watch your life and your doctrine closely, lest you too be infected. And, and this infection is the hopeless alternative gospel of greed. The hopeless alternative gospel of greed. And it's so sneaky, isn't it? Greed. It's hard to see greed in the mirror. I've never had anybody confess to me, Randy, I struggle with greed. I'm just flat greedy. I just, nobody, nobody's ever, nobody has ever said that to me. And I've never said it to anybody either. Okay? It's sneaky. And Paul defines greed in these verses. Paul says, Greedy people are those who passionately pursue more and more wealth because they have put their hope in wealth rather than God. Okay? Greedy people are those who passionately pursue more and more wealth because they put their hope in wealth rather than God. So, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, um, originally came to us in the language of the New Testament, which is Greek, and as I was digging around in my study, here's, the, here's my translation of this. And it's um, that those who passionately pursue wealth for themselves fall into the power of temptation, into a trap. And into many foolish and hurtful desires that sink people into death and eternal misery. See? Now notice what Paul is saying here, that Greed is about pursuing, not possessing. Greed is about acquiring, not owning. It's about hunting, not having. Greed is this constant quest for an unquenchable thirst. And so greedy people talk a lot about money. And greedy people worry a lot about money. And greedy people are not cheerful givers. Greedy people are reluctant to share. Greedy people quibble about insignificant sums of money. Greedy people talk as if they have just enough to get by. 
Greedy people often create a culture of secrecy around them, and greedy people won't let you forget what they've done for you. Greedy people are reluctant to express gratitude. Greedy people aren't content with what they have. Greedy people try to control people with their money. And greedy people exist in every socioeconomic area. Here's the deal. There are greedy poor people and greedy rich people. Because greed is not a money issue. Greed is a heart issue. It's about what's going on in your heart. A heart which fears that God either can't or won't take care of them. And specifically, the fear that God won't take care of them the way they would like to be taken care of. And so greedy people shoulder the burden to acquire and maintain everything they need to provide the sense of security they want. But therein lies the problem because there's never enough. There's just never enough. And consequently, greedy people are are, uh, rarely at peace with others and never at peace with themselves. Some of you have seen this chart uh, that has appeared in several, several uh, social science um, surveys, and this version appears in uh, almost every different survey that happens. And so what we have here is the blue line that goes uh, from a little over $10,000 per person in 1957 income all the way up to, uh, you know, almost 40000 in 2012. That's the blue line of average personal income. And then the, the, the red dots represent a person's sense of well-being, their happiness quotient. And what this says is, is that once your basic necessities of food and clothing and shelter are met, okay? Once that happens... More money and more material prosperity has, has absolutely no effect on your happiness quotient or your subjective sense of well-being. I mean, this is uh, Ed Diener uh, from the university who is a professor on, he's the happiness professor, uh, and um, another professor named Dyer from Hope College. You know, uh, study after study shows this. Um, And here's what else it shows. At at all levels of wealth, from modest to tremendously wealthy, people tend to compare themselves to those who are just ahead of them in riches. So, 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 So our satisfaction is relative to what others possess, not what we need to possess or even what we want to possess. So, so in other words, that you know, Jeep Patriot in your garage is a dream come true until your neighbor pulls into her driveway in a gleaming X5. You know, we, we, we never compare ourselves to the disabled veteran sleeping in the alley grateful for what we have. We don't do that. We compare ourselves to our siblings and uh, our co-workers, our classmates, uh, the Joneses, our peers, and we're not satisfied uh, until we have as much or more as they do. And as long as, as long as that state exists in our minds, as long as someone has more than we do, then we're not greedy. So greed's somebody else's problem, it's not mine. Well, the real issue with these false teachers isn't money. 
its heart. It's a greedy heart. And they thought they could flood their hearts with financial gain, and then that would satisfy their soul. But that's not what occurred. What occurred was an addiction. Uh, they did not become content. They became trapped. And that's why in verse 9, the Apostle Paul uses the word snare, into a snare. That's a great word picture. It, it describes a noose that's hidden beneath uh, leaves and twigs that ensnare the bird or the animal that steps into it. It's like the fly that lands on that flypaper and proudly pronounces, My flypaper! And that takes us to verse 10, one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. Can't tell you how many times people have said to me, yeah, I know, pastor, I know, pastor. Money is the root of all evil. No, that's not what it says. What's it say? The love of money. So, so money's not the problem. And money is not the root of all evil. Okay? Money's not the problem, the love of money, the craving for money. The passionate pursuit of money, the emotional burning after and the pursuing of money is not the root, it's a root. There are other roots, and money is but one of them. And all kinds of evils, all kinds. Well, what kinds? The kinds mentioned in verses 4 and 5. We're talking about envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction and the chaos, you see. And notice... That those deal with matters of the heart. What's my, that my spirit gets hollowed out. Uh, it's like this worm that kind of burrows into this apple and then all, it just eats it up from the inside out. And misplaced hope gets lodged in the heart, which then craves cash, which then leads to conceit which then causes a swerving from gospel truth and ultimately an impaling, an impaling. Verse 10's pierced themselves is really too gentle. It should be impaled. They have impaled themselves on this false gospel. The fact of the matter is, money is too small a raindrop to fill the Grand Canyon of your heart. King money is too puny to fill your vast soul. Your soul needs a bigger, better, more worthy king. And that's where we get to true hope in verses 11 through 16. The true hope based on the true gospel describing the only king worthy of our heart's worship. So if the false gospel's formula is simply Jesus plus something equals salvation, the true gospel is this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the true gospel. That's why we say around here the only, the only thing we have to offer is grace. Grace through Christ. Christ's grace. He is the only king worthy of your heart's worship. And Paul uses imperial language here in verses 14 through 16. These descriptions appearing, display, blessed and only sovereign, king of kings and lord of lords. These were used of the Caesars of the first century. 
And Paul says that these are puny Roman pretenders who pale in comparison to the immortal, unapproachable, blessed, and only sovereign to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Jesus. And the gospel is that this king made you his treasure. This king impoverished himself and impaled himself on a Roman cross so that in his death, burial, and resurrection, we through his poverty might be rich. He did that for us. Now then, you know, in the, in the light of that love, let that king rule your heart and you will never, ever want for anything again. And that requires the discipline to stay focused on Christ and to keep your eyes on Christ. And that's what's behind verses uh, 11 and 12 and 13 where Paul begins this, this challenging, coaching passage with, But as for you, O man of God, O man of God, a, a phrase that was used of Moses and Samuel, and David, and Elijah, and Elisha. Paul is saying, Timothy, this is who you are. This is your identity. You belong to God. You are in league with these great heroes of hope. Now, as one who belongs to God, fight. Fight like them. Take hold of hope like they did. You're done with this world, man. Church family, my problem is not that I love this world too much. It's that I love Christ too little. And when my love for Christ gets amplified, then I'll be equipped to enjoy and steward all of His gifts. Money is not the problem. My heart is my problem. And that takes us to this practical part as this chapter concludes Paul says in these verses, when Christ floods your heart, you will no longer put your hope in riches, but you will hope in the one who richly provides. That's what he's saying here. I will no longer hope in riches. I won't put my hope in wealth. I won't put my hope in money. I won't put my hope in riches, but I will put my hope in the one who richly provides. And that's why he says what he says. As for the rich in this present age, verse 17, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I will not put my hope in riches, but I will put my hope in the one who richly provides. I'll do that. And when, you, when that happens, when your heart gets flooded, then you're going to know how to enjoy God's good gifts. You will. <laughs> uh, Paul says in chapter 4, verse 4, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. He repeats this in verse 17. God richly provides us everything to enjoy. When Christ floods your heart, when He is your true hope, when the creator of the universe is your true hope, then you can enjoy His creation the way He designed you to enjoy His creation be, be that good weather, or good food, or good coffee. Yeah, Jesus provides for us to enjoy. And 
He provides for us to share. Share. So you notice here, Paul does not tell Timothy to tell the church to divest themselves of their wealth. Because as a Christian philosopher Dallas Willard once said, being poor is one of the poorest ways to help the poor. But a heart which shares says things like, this is so good. This is so good. Try this. Taste this. This coffee is phenomenal. I Share. Taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's that good. And then Paul says to Timothy, you tell them, verse 18, they're to do good, they're to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. So Paul says the, the remedy for greed, the antibiotic that will kill the infection of greed is not prayer. And there's nothing wrong with prayer. And it's not reading your Bible. And there's nothing wrong with reading your Bible. But the antibiotic that kills the infection of greed is giving. Is giving. Is sharing. Give regularly and give your best. And when we give God first, and then when we share with ourselves and others, okay, we show that all is His. And the discipline of tithing, 10% of God's blessings, uh, of what God has blessed us with, we, we, we give first. This discipline of tithing is uh, what Rebecca DeYoung says is a Sabbath from our natural tendency to replace God with money or stuff. And, and like a Sabbath rest from labor and like feasting after fasting, the discipline, the habit of tithing, and the generosity for which it frees us is meant to be a part of the constant rhythm of life. And, and, and she says that the point of tithing is not rigid conformity to a code of behavior. It is training to reform our hearts so that we learn to give with gratitude and joy and love. And I mention this as an encouragement to you all because you've experienced that. Your sharing, God's sharing through you, makes this church community possible. And, and so this week, you know, after second service, these chairs are going to come down. And uh, this room along with uh, the new space that's been uh, uh, built and the repurposed space, will be prepared for hundreds that will come uh, on our campus for a safe place, kind of a safe Halloween alternative this week. Uh, as we, uh, we 6,000 flyers went out uh, to our schools in Champaign inviting uh, children and families to come and, and for a safe place warm, loving place. Uh, and next week, uh, we're going to begin a new series called Building Strong Families because we believe that every parent is the, their child's primary pastor 
in their home. And, and this is why uh, God generously allowed us to construct these facilities so that we could make disciples. And uh, that's why we support the missionaries that we do, both stateside and internationally. And that's why uh, when families come in, families come in uh, in need for food pantry, which has been about double so far this year, uh, 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 we're able to love them. And uh, that's why in just a few weeks uh, we'll be uh, having Operation Christmas Child. Uh, uh, there'll be a packing party. It's this pamphlet that's on your chairs. And your families can, can serve Christ together. And uh, there'll be a Christmas uh, 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 loving event through salt and light. Uh, 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 and on and on. Look. None of these ministry activities happen for free. I've been here for 27 years and Ameren still won't pay for the electricity for these lights. Okay? I mean, you know it takes money to, uh, to have a healthy church community. It just does. And uh, that's why I'm encouraged by God's generosity through you all. Um, so... Uh, it, on your registration card, uh, your response card, you'll see that our weekly need for 2016 is $31,000. So $31,000 is our spending plan for 2016. Um, the average to date, which is accurate as of last Sunday, is uh, $30,939. Yay, God. Yay, God. You know? Uh, and and so, so I'm... I'm not mentioning this because there's a crisis. We're not in a crisis. God's been good uh, 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 through your hearts to this church family. And, and so, so that makes this really the best time to talk about it, which is this, to encourage you more and more and more. A few years ago, I showed you um, something called the generosity ladder. And we have uh, uh, different Givers here at Windsor Road. We have, we have first-time givers. Um, those who have maybe not given to the church, but then just began giving. Uh, we have occasional givers. Those who give to the church, but not consistently. Uh, we have those who have become more intentional at giving. Consistently giving a portion of my income to our church. We have tithers. And I used that word earlier. Tithe uh, means tenth. Those who faithfully give 10% of their income uh, to God through the, their church family. And then, and then extravagant givers, giving, giving, giving beyond uh, the tithe to their church family. We, all of us are here. And so while I'm encouraged by God's generosity and thank Him for His generosity uh, through you to our church family, I, I want to just also use this as a challenge because what we've discovered is that there's probably 40% of us, at least, that are in the first time, occasional, maybe intentional, but mainly the first time and occasional uh, 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 areas. And I just want to encourage you to trust God. And if you will put Him first, He will take care of you. He will. Uh, and um, uh, I, I want to tell you, the only verse in the Bible where God says, test me, is Malachi 3.10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. 
that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. The only verse in the Bible that says, that where God says, test me in this, test me in this. And when we give God from off the top, okay, then we're identifying with God as a giver before identifying as a consumer. And, and I know some of you may be thinking, um, all right. There's just another pastor who goes from the cross to my billfold. I, okay, listen, I understand that, okay? Um, so here's what I would ask you to do. Out in the Welcome Center on the desk is a document called 19 Questions That You Should Ask Before You, you Give to Any Organization. So I would challenge you to I'd take a copy of that and study that. And, um, and, and here's what I would challenge you to do. Um, before you give... Go on a missions trip. Go on a missions trip. Uh, we've got a missions luncheon, uh, October the 30th, 12, 15, and we, we send people all over the world, you know, and go and, and see if your heart is not captured uh, by the true hope that comes by being focused on Christ. Uh, and if you can't go on a missions trip, get involved in ministry. Uh, get involved in serving outside yourself. And, and approach, approach this with an open heart. God, teach me. God, teach me. Malachi 3.10, I mean, it, it's settled in my heart. Uh, it, it, it settled in my heart. Um, giving generously kills greed. It'll kill it. Giving generously shows your hope in the living God. Giving generously stores up treasure for yourself as a good foundation for the future. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. You know? The Bible says we're pilgrims, we're strangers, we're aliens on earth. Your body is not going to survive this life. But Christ is preparing for you a new body in the new heavens and the new earth. We're citizens of a better country. So I will not put my hope in riches, but in the one who richly provides. And Paul concludes this chapter with just one last appeal. You know, the ink's running out of the pen. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Amazing grace. And according to church tradition, Timothy received this letter, and then he received another one, 2 Timothy, in which Paul says, Step it up, son. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and self-control. And then Timothy went to Rome. Church tradition says he witnessed Paul's execution. And then he returned to Ephesus. And he remained in Ephesus for, for many years as the leading pastor, as the bishop of Ephesus. 
until he was 80. 80. I got 25 years to go, folks. <laughs> and then in the year AD 97, during a pagan feast in Ephesus, this 80-year-old bishop was seeing the raucous that was going on in that godless mob and he severely scolded them as they were parading down the street. And he was scolding them for their ridiculous idolatry. And that mob got so angry that they mobbed him. And they attacked him and beat, beat him with clubs in so dreadful a manner that he expired of bruises two days later. Timothy took hold of life that is truly life. He put his hope not in riches, but in the one who richly provides. May God help us as we do that ourselves. Amen.